preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that these words be yours and not my own. You'd be at work in this place this morning. And that you would prosper our journey through the book of Acts in the coming weeks. May we grow from it and learn from it. Become a stronger church as a result of it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It looks like you all still have your fingers and toes. We can be very grateful for that. If you're new here to Hollis Center Church, my name's David. I am the teaching pastor here and a member of the preaching team. And I'm glad that you've decided to join us today. We just spent three weeks in the book of Joel. And now we are going to be jumping into a series in the book of Acts. Which is going to take us a little bit. And uh, as already mentioned, we do have ESV journals as we go throughout the book of Acts. That's a tool that's available here for you to use if you want to take notes and you don't want to just absolutely destroy the pages of your, of your Bible uh, with notes as you go through the book of Acts, you can use that journal instead. I've entitled this message today, Drawn to Action, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You know, we live in a day and in an age where it seems like information comes so fast that we can't even respond to it. You know, gone are the days when a movie came out and you just had to wait around until another movie came out. And a book came out and you had to wait a while for another book to make it to your bookshelf. Or um, when there were long gaps between your ability to access music or, or even sermons. Nowadays with the internet, we have vast libraries of information at our fingertips 24-7. You can be watching Netflix or another streaming service, and they do that sneaky little thing where they start playing the next episode, right, just as it ends. No longer do you like sit in silence and think about the episode, but nope, we're just going to give you another one right away. Or if you use social media on you know, YouTube or, or TikTok or Instagram, there are these little videos called Reels. And they're like 30 seconds, 60 seconds. You watch one, you swipe up, there's another one. You watch that and you swipe up, there's another one. And another, and another, and another, 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 another. And then an hour and a half goes by and you snap out of it and you can't remember what you just watched. Because we are being conditioned to be consumers. To consume media, to consume information. And yet I would argue that the greatest stories... Good stories require a response. That a well-crafted story is not just given for us to consume and then move on to the next thing, but to dwell on and then to change the way we think, change the way we live. Maybe in your own life there was a movie or a book or a sermon or a song or an album that made you think, And it made you just sit and and maybe even think about changing your own lifestyle. Maybe the story just captivated you and you decided you wanted to move to another state or you wanted to change jobs or change the way your house looks or whatever it was. The story changed you. It called you to do something. It wasn't just information. A few years back, there was this 
documentary that was released on Netflix called Minimalism. How many of you actually watched that? A few. It was a while ago. There was this documentary called Minimalism, and it was about these people who are called minimalists. And these psychos decide that they want to live with like 30 items. And they aren't going to have anything else. Just 30 items and nothing else. But they put that documentary together in such a compelling fashion. They crafted such a wonderful story that every time I've seen that documentary, I've watched it three times, every single time I've started like purging my belongings. That I didn't just sit there and go, oh, those guys are weird. I'm never going to do that. Though, even though I'm not a minimalist, if any of you have been to my house, oh, just by fishing gear alone, I am not a minimalist. But there was something about the story that actually called me to act. I think the greatest example has been when there's been a major tragedy or a major world event, and then news reporters accurately and passionately convey that event to draw a response. Think about Pearl Harbor. Think about 9-11, right? Those are two events that caused massive amounts of Americans to sign up and join the army and join the military. And I want you to think of that as we go into the book of Acts. The story of Acts should draw us to action. The story of Acts should draw us to action. That in the book of Acts, we have a history of the early church. We have stories that were were guarded and kept and recorded from the very beginnings of the church. And this is not just information to go in one ear and out the next, but these are stories that should draw us to act, should draw us to action, should draw us to a different way of living. So I'm hoping that you've already turned there with me. If you haven't, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and verse 2. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So right off the bat, the author, um, which is a guy named Luke, is referencing a book that was previously written. I hope you can guess what that book was. We have a gospel in the New Testament named Luke. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. We'll actually see in the book of Acts, there's a point where in the story it goes from talking about them to talking about we, because Luke actually was there for some of these events, and Luke cared about the details. He cared about recording the story of what Jesus was doing, what Jesus had done and was continuing to do as a gift to the church, as an encouragement to other people. Now, This Theophilus that he's writing these letters to, we don't really know much about him. We don't know much about Theophilus. His name means lover of God. So it seems likely that this title that was given to him or this name that was given to him, um, he has probably some connection to Christianity, probably was a Christian, but we don't know for sure. The book of Acts was probably written around A.D. 62 to A.D. 64. The events of the book actually go from about A.D. 30 to A.D. 62. So it couldn't have been written, obviously, or finished during those years. So the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is part one. Acts is part two. And so here in his intro, he talks about Jesus. Before he ascended to the Father, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So who are these apostles? 
Well, the word apostle means someone who's a delegate, an ambassador, a messenger, one who is sent with a message. And in this case, specifically, this is referring to those who were commissioned by Jesus, chosen and commissioned by Jesus. In his earthly ministry, Jesus had 12 disciples. I mean, he had a bunch of disciples, but there were 12 that he specifically chose to be his inner circle. One of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus and then killed himself. And we're going to see next week when Steve covers it, that they actually chose a guy to replace Judas so that they would still have 12 to kind of represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is where it gets kind of messy because later on in the New Testament, Paul's walking around and he seems to be an apostle. So it seems that to be an apostle in the early church, you had to be someone who was commissioned directly by the risen Jesus Christ. That's our, kind of our best guess of what it meant to be an apostle, at least having that position. We don't see that today. We know historically that the apostles, in the long run, in their ministries, they did not make sure that there were 12 guys to come after them, but they appointed elders and bishops who then spread out throughout the known world. However, I would argue that today, we do st- still see people with kind of an apostolic gifting. You know, those, those church planters or denominational leaders who can manage to invest in a ministry and then leave that ministry and still keep their hand on it and encourage it and help it to grow and have oversight over multiple churches. I think the gifting is still around, but we don't see people, so you don't see sane people talk, walking around saying, oh, I'm one of the 12 apostles who has authority over the whole church. I could go on about that, but I'm going to move on. The Holy Spirit... We believe in a God who is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actually empowering Jesus in his ministry. And this is really important because in the book of Acts, we're going to see that same spirit, the spirit of the living God, empowering Christians as they obey the commands of Jesus. This is going to be very important as we go through the book of Acts. Now in verse 3, it says, referring to Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent about a month encouraging his followers, specifically proving that he actually had risen from the dead, that he wasn't just an apparition, this wasn't a hoax, but he had actually risen from the dead, and then teaching them about the kingdom of God. Proving the resurrection and teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it was very important that they would have a good understanding of the resurrection, because the resurrection is central to the gospel message. That Jesus did not just simply come and die as a payment for his people, that we could be forgiven of our sins because he took the punishment that was, that was preserved for us, reserved for us, but death couldn't keep him. That Jesus has victory over death that he is actually the king of all things. He has power over death. He was raised, he was the first fruits, and those who come after him, those who believe, will one day be raised again on that final day. That the resurrection is central to our Christian hope. It was very important that Jesus' followers, especially his apostles, had a good theology of the resurrection. And then the kingdom. 
We can define the kingdom as the rule of God, started by Christ and growing through the church and then coming fully when Jesus comes back. You get into the Gospels and Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes it seems that he's referring to a present reality. Sometimes it seems he's referring to something that's coming in the future or maybe something that is current but is growing like the yeast that is rising or a tree that is growing. The kingdom is here. It's all ready, but it's not yet. We are still waiting the full arrival of the kingdom, but it is a present reality in this world. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. So, moving on to verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So Jesus tells his followers to stay put and to wait for the promise of the Father. This promise being the Holy Spirit empowering his people. The apostle, well sorry, the prophet John, John the Baptist, He came to pave the way for Jesus, and he was using water as a symbol. As a symbol to baptize people, to dunk them in the Jordan River, to prepare them for the Messiah to come. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, he came. And now the promise for God's people is that the Holy Spirit would work in them, would indwell them, and empower them. And here specifically refers to a a baptism with the Holy Spirit, a specific moment where they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from then. Now, this promise of the Holy Spirit is very prominent in the book of John. I'd like to buzz through some bits of the book of John real quick. You can turn with me to chapter 14 if you would like. John chapter 14, verses 15 Through 17, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then if we jump up to verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, starting in verse 7, I did not say these things to you. Oh, sorry, verse 7, there we go. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father 
And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, that's kind of an overwhelming amount of verses about the Holy Spirit. But this was an emphasis of what Jesus taught his followers. He's saying, look, the Spirit is coming. I need to go, and it's better because I'm sending the Spirit to empower you, to enable you to share who Jesus is with the world, to teach you about me, to bear witness about me as you are bearing witness about me. Holy Spirit is a wonderful gift, and we talked about that when we went through the book of Joel. A wonderful gift given to God's people as we share the gospel. And here, in verses 4 and 5, if you flip back there to the book of Acts, there's this mention of a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. This is where the plot thickens. Dun, dun, dun is that in John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus already gave the Holy Spirit to his followers. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is drawing in the imagery from the book of Genesis, that the new creation was starting with what Jesus had done and continues to do through his people. There's a new creation in and among God's people. And he'd already given them the Holy Spirit. They saw the resurrected Christ, they believed, and they were given the Holy Spirit. So then what are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for power. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to do this powerful work on the day of Pentecost to draw other people to believe and to jumpstart the church. They had received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they still were waiting for the Spirit to do something spectacular. And to also pour himself out on other believers, on the people, the the crowds that would follow Jesus on that day of Pentecost. I think people often confuse the reality that the Holy Spirit indwells every believer with with the also subsequent reality that the Holy Spirit can empower his people in various moments, at various times, in various ways. That just the fact that we have the Holy Spirit does not mean we are fully empowered. There are times where the Holy Spirit does amazing things through people. That's not every day. Every day, however, the Holy Spirit is doing an amazing work in us, in changing us, in shaping us, directing us. The phrase I like to use is that there is one indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but there are multiple fillings. Hopefully many fillings, many times in our lives where the Holy Spirit does something and we just go, wow. Now in verse 6, there's a flashback to the ascension, a flashback to the moment when Jesus ascended to the Father. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This was the question that just dogged Jesus' disciples throughout the earthly ministry because they had this very politicized view of Jesus' reign. They wanted him to come in, kill the Romans, sit on the throne, and then Israel would be its own nation and no one would ever bother them again. And Jesus came 
And he allowed himself to be killed to fulfill the scriptures, to provide salvation for his people. He rose from the dead in fulfillment of the scriptures. So they're starting to get kind of a bigger view, a more precise view of what God's plan is. But they're still trying to put the pieces together. Like, okay, so now are you going to sit on the throne? Like, when are, you, when are you going to kind of bring this all to a head? When are you going to really bring the kingdom fully here? And Jesus responds wonderfully. Not the response we would want if we were asking the question necessarily. He said, it is not for you to know. How many have used that on your kids before? Right? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority In verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They say, hey, is the kingdom coming now? Jesus says, that's not for you to know. That's above your security clearance, above your pay grade. But you're going to be my witnesses. You are going to be actively and powerfully involved in my kingdom spreading across this world here in Jerusalem, also to the rest of the areas where the Jews were living at that time that was known as Judea, and then even to Samaria, where those half-breeds lived, the people the Jews didn't like, note the gospel was going to go there as well, and even to the end of the earth. We've entitled this series, Witnesses to the End. As we're going to see in the book of Acts, the gospel go to the ends of the, the known world at that time. We are still waiting for it to get to the very ends of the earth. And many times in the book of Acts, we are going to see people be witnesses to the end. That is, witnesses even to death. But verse 8 here is a map for the book of Acts. It is our theme verse for the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That the Spirit was going to empower them to spread the good news. Verse 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when, sorry, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus' followers are on this hill and they watch Jesus ascend to the Father and they're just standing there like this. Just looking. And then we see these two angels show up. We assume they're angels sent by the Father. And it's funny, this account mirrors what happens in Luke 24 when they first go to the empty tomb. And there are two guys there standing in brilliant clothes, and they go, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They're kind of sarcastic. I imagine they're just kind of leaning there, like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Get out of here. Didn't Jesus tell you he'd be raised? Don't you remember the scriptures? And they're kind of doing the same thing here. Why are you just standing there looking up into heaven? He's coming back. you got work to do. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Something that's really cool, actually, is that this scene totally upstages the way Roman emperors would die. 
because in the Roman Empire, there was this kind of mythology, this tradition that when a Roman emperor would die, someone would witness their soul going to heaven to prove that they were becoming a god. And rather than the the body of a dead emperor and someone saying, oh yeah, I saw his spirit rise up to the heavens, here you have Jesus bodily ascending to the Father. Totally upstaging any mythology around the Roman emperors. I hope that you guys feel the emphasis of this passage. Like, it's a wonderful way that the book opens. It sets the tone for action. It's reminding Jesus' followers that they were not meant to just stand there staring up in the sky, but rather they have work to do in spreading the influence of the kingdom to the end of the earth, to the farthest reaches of the earth. Now, Jesus told them to wait to receive power. And then they were going to use that power, the Holy Spirit, that work that the Holy Spirit was doing through them to share the gospel across even tough ethnic divisions and national divisions. This message was not just for Israelites. It was for all nations, that all the nations of the world would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. The story of Acts should draw us to action I want you to imagine, and this is a funny illustration because I came up with this before we had that like, you know, horrible day the other day where the ice came in all of our windows and it was cold in our houses. I want you to imagine it's July. See, that's going to sound really good to many of you, but once you're there, you aren't going to like it. You know, you can complain all you want about the cold, but we're going to get like that, those one or two weeks where it feels like Florida here and we just go, oh, I had to use my air conditioner, right? We know what those days are like. We're just oppressively hot, at least for those of us who are, you know, Mainers and our our blood vessels have acclimated to the north. And so I want you to imagine it's one of these horribly hot days and there's a child who is sitting in his parents' house and he's complaining about the heat, complaining about how hot it is and longing for fall. I I know some of you have done that. Right? You're just longing for fall. Man, I wish September was here. September is so nice. Even October, you know, just put on a fleece or a little puffy, you know, vest and go out, you know, take a beautiful walk with the dog. But oh, it's just so hot. I wish it was fall. I wish it was fall. And imagine that in that scene of this child complaining that it's too hot and wishing it was fall, simultaneously, in that moment, there's a pool in the backyard, that his parents had already bought a pool, installed the pool, filled the pool, and there's this wonderful pool in the backyard, and yet this kid is inside complaining that it's not fall. That's kind of a silly image, isn't it? If that kid just realized that, yes, cool weather will come, the seasons do change, they change quicker and quicker, I think, as we get older, but there is something worthwhile, and there is something cooling and something enjoyable to do right now, even though it's July. That's what that kid needs to realize. And I think that's what we as Christians also need to realize. Often we get sucked into this hell in a handbasket mentality that we we look at the news and we look at politics and and we look at the economy and go, man, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. And we just think, okay, I just need to hunker down and survive till either I die or Jesus comes back and then everything's going to be fine. And obviously, I do not want to limit the beauty and the wonder of those truths, right? That was last Sunday, right, where we just dwelt on the amazing reality of what's going to happen in the end. We can get excited about that, but 
the flip side of that is that there is work for us to do now, and it's actually enjoyable and exciting. We don't just need to hunker down and hide from the world and protect ourselves until either we die or Jesus comes back, but rather the spirit of the living God is empowering us, guiding us, as we get to share the greatest story ever told, the greatest message ever given to humanity, to all people. That's what we get to do now. That's what we get to do now. And yet so often we're like that kid, just wishing it was fall already. Guess what? Fall is going to come. But there's good things to be enjoyed here in July. Or maybe for us today, you know what? There are good things to be enjoyed in February. For some of you, that might be the chocolate, right? Valentine's Day is coming. And for some of you, you enjoy ice fishing and you are sitting there cold, but you were like, yes, we finally got good ice. Might be able to get across a little ospy finally, right? So there are good things now. Yes, there are good things later. The story of Acts should draw us to action. So here's a question that people often ask, theologians often ask around the book of Acts. Is it descriptive or prescriptive. That is, is the book of Acts uh, the book of Acts merely a description of events or is it a like a prescription, like a guidebook that this is how you should act. That's kind of the big dialogue, the disagreement among people. Okay, is it descriptive or prescriptive? And the reality is, yeah. It's both. But it's not all the way one or all the way the other. Because the book of Acts, yeah, it's a history. It's a recording of events that actually happened. But it's not just information. It's not just a nice little history lesson that kind of, oh, that's a cool little history lesson. But that information was given to us, it was given to the early church for a purpose. And while it is not as instructive as the epistles... The book of Acts is our clearest picture that we have of how the early church functioned and what it looked like to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we mimic everything we see in the book of Acts, that we have to replicate everything in the book of Acts. That's not really healthy. That's not what the book is there for. But it certainly is meant to call us to action and to to kind of give us a vision of what it looks like to be God's church. There is a warning, though, and my warning is this. The book of Acts is a highlight reel. It covers 30 years. 30 years, and you are getting, like, the coolest events possible in 30 years. It's the highlight reel. And so the, the danger is to look at the highlight reel and then expect that every single day of your life has to look like the highlight reel. That's just not realistic. That's not biblical. Like, most of the Christian life is patient endurance. Patient endurance. Not every day of your life is going to look like the day of Pentecost. It didn't for the Apostle Paul, and it certainly isn't going to look like that for you. But those events, they actually happened. Like, we can expect God to do amazing things among his people. We can expect the Holy Spirit to do the unexpectable, if that's possible. So we we don't want to look at the highlight reel and expect that that is going to be every single day of our lives, but also we need to look at that highlight reel and be encouraged by that and go, man, our God is powerful. He can do amazing things through his people, and we can expect him to do amazing things today. 
We need to be careful of the highlight reel. So there's two points in the book of Acts that I want to highlight for us. This is kind of a, an introductory to the book. I think Luke did a great job introducing his own book with these verses. The first point is that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. I've already kind of touched on the gospel, but just to rewind, you know, the story we have in God's word is of paradise, of perfection, of God creating uh, man in a perfect relationship with him, a perfect relationship with each other, and that was broken by sin and rebellion. And so we live in a world that is marked by sin, rebellion, destruction, all sorts of awful, horrible things. And we as sinners, those who have rebelled against the king, there's a penalty for that. And the good news is that Jesus paid it for those who trust in him. Jesus paid the penalty. And beyond that, when he forgives us, when we put our trust in him, he brings us into a family. And as that family, the church, members of the kingdom of God, we get to then live out the new creation that Jesus is doing with the life and the change that Jesus gives us, we've yet to become a glimpse to the world of what's finally coming one day in the end of the new Jerusalem. That Jesus is doing a new creation, it starts with him. He needs to be the center. If you take Jesus out of this Christian equation, you don't got nothing. You don't got nothing. Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's the foundation of this new work. He started it. He's finishing it. We just get to participate in the meantime. And that's what brings us to point two. The Spirit empowers his people to be representatives of this new creation. Jesus started the new creation, and he will finalize it when he comes again. But we have work to do as part of that new creation today, tomorrow, and until either we die or Jesus comes back. I think it's important. I don't think it's without reason that Jesus taught his followers in his final days with them about the kingdom, proved his resurrection, and then sent them the Spirit. I don't think that's a coincidence because these are three areas of false teaching that continually pop up in the church. I think the reason being, there is someone who wants to stop Christianity from being effective. There is someone who wants, actually a whole host of someones, who want to stop that message from going to all nations. There is Satan, there is a horde of demons, and they don't want want that message to go out to the nations. Because guess what? When the fullness of those whom God has chosen come in, when the fullness of the Gentiles come into the kingdom, and Jesus comes back, it's game over for them. They want to elongate this as much as they can. And I think that's why these three core concepts we see false teaching come up time and time and time and time again in the church. The gospel is our hope and our message. Like I said, you take Jesus out of the equation, we don't have anything. You see these movements pop up where people try to, you know, live out the kingdom and live out the new creation, but it has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with turning from our sins and turning to our only hope, Jesus. It just has to do with changing your behavior and reforming society. And guess what? It doesn't work. 
We also get, you know, weird ideas about the kingdom of God. Throughout history, there have been times where people view the kingdom of God as them. In the sense that they go, my church specifically is the kingdom of God. My government specifically is the kingdom of God. You think that sounds crazy? Like, read a history book. Europe, is, Europe was just full of that kind of thought back in the day. Guess what? The kingdom is way bigger than any one human institution. You can't pin it down. God is going to grow it and grow it and grow it. There's nothing really the enemy can do to stop it. I think if we have a proper understanding of the kingdom, that will lead to a proper understanding of missions. Because if we know that the kingdom is bigger than our church, that God is doing something bigger than just Hollis Center Church, even bigger than just churches like our church, that gives us an attitude of teamwork in reaching the nations rather than competition. Hollis Center Church is not the kingdom of God. I do honestly believe the kingdom of God touches this place and touches the people who gather here. But Hollis Center Church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger. We are a part of it. And so we actually have a responsibility to work with others who are also part of the kingdom because we're on the same team. We're, we're aiming for the same goal. We're running towards the same hoop. I mean, how many more sports illustrations do you want? We are on the same team. We're on the same team. And then finally, the Spirit. Man, so much false teaching comes up about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not exclude the need for knowledge. Just because God has given us his Spirit to direct us and lead us does not mean we throw our Bibles away and we stop learning about God's Word. Doesn't mean that. But... The Holy Spirit will empower us, will direct us, and will use us in powerful ways to spread the gospel. So often, there's just an extreme one way or the other. The story of Acts should draw us to action. It should draw us to action. So I have two challenges. Two challenges for us as we work through this book together over the coming weeks. The first is that we would pay attention to the priorities, the messages presented, and the strategies used by the Christians in the book of Acts, and then use this to shape our own witnessing, that the book of Acts would not just be info. It would not just be data. Oh, that was a nice sermon. That was a nice story. It was cool that that happened. Moving on with my life. But we would really honestly study how those Christians lived, what their priorities were, how they spoke to people who didn't know Jesus, and we would take notes. Not that we would model exactly what they did, because guess what? We do not live where they lived. The people we interact with are not the same people they interacted with, but there's a lot we can learn from those missionary journeys we're going to see in the book of Acts. Those moments of confrontation we see in the book of Acts. And number two, we should pay attention to examples of being all in for Jesus. We should challenge ourselves to make our own specific sacrifices as we attempt to reach others. The book of Acts is just full of people who are willing to risk everything to share the gospel with other people. And often we are so, we are so comfortable. We're, we're so, our grip is just tight around all sorts of elements of our life that we are not willing to lay aside or risk to talk to people about Jesus. 
And so I would hope that we'd be challenged by the examples of people, people being all in for the kingdom of God, all in for Jesus, and that would cause us to sit and think and maybe make sacrifices in our own lives. The story of Acts should draw us to action. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment in the weeks to come. Help us to see where you would have us change. What you would have us do. How you would have us live in response to your word. Lord, we want to be a church that is filled with your Holy Spirit. That reaches the nations. That all sorts of different people in our community and beyond get to know you. To become part of your people. I pray you direct us and work for our good in this book. That it wouldn't just be information, but we would respond to that information. We would respond to this story that has been crafted for us. And you would work good through it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So today is the first of the month, well, the first Sunday of the month. And so that's generally the Sunday that we like to celebrate the Lord's table or communion. And in light of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right, this roadmap of the gospel, leaving Jerusalem and then going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, I want us to think about the role of this symbol across the earth today, across the globe today. First off, there are a lot of Christians that are in the same time zone as us that also celebrate communion on the first of the month. You know, we love to do the same thing around here in New England. And so there are so many churches right now that maybe they're listening to their pastor and they have their Bibles open and they have bread and wine or, or grape juice and crackers and they are sitting around ready to partake at the Lord's table. We, are, we get to have unity with those people. Right? There's so many true believers that are also gathered today in a similar fashion about to partake in this symbol. And there are even Christians around the world there are Christians in Togo that are drinking fruit of the vine out of half gourds. And Christians in Nepal that are drinking the liquid of green grapes because those are the grapes that grow around there. There are Greek Orthodox Christians who have fasted from Friday night until Sunday to be prepared for communion. There are Christians who might be sharing a bottle of red wine and a special loaf of bread. And there are Christians who in their poverty may only have dirty water and whatever bread they could scavenge. People are celebrating communion in thatched roofs, ancient stone buildings, tiny churches, big churches, all around the globe, proof that the kingdom is working, that the gospel is spreading out to even the farthest corners of the world. And today, we get to have unity with those brothers and sisters. In Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, in there it says, the Apostle Paul writes, 
the cup of blessing that we bless? Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, obviously these sanitary cups, we lose a little bit of the symbolism. But I want you to imagine that we'd all broken off bread off of the same loaf. That is a symbol of our unity in Christ. That because of Christ's sacrifice, because of how his body was broken and beaten for us, he purchased unity for his people. He has made us as one people, his church, that he is preparing as his bride. And so for those of us that are Christians in this room, this is a symbol for us. It's not a symbol for those of you that do not know Jesus. Let us take this in remembrance of Christ and the work he's doing in his body. Lord, by the suffering that you endured, you have built a wonderful temple for your Holy Spirit, the church. Thank you that we get to be part of that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Moving a chapter over, chapter 11, verse 25. That night when Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples before he was to die, it said in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant, a co- a covenant is an agreement, a relationship with blessings and curses. And for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, It's by his blood we are brought together into that body, into that fellowship. The terms and the conditions of our covenant are not based on our ability to perform, but are based on the full and complete work of Jesus Christ. So we are secure in our fellowship together, in our fellowship with our creator. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Oh, Lord, we need you. We need your work in our lives to be rescued. And yet you have not rescued us just to be like little porcelain dolls on a shelf. We are not meant to be trinkets in a pew, but rather, Lord, You have rescued us that we might serve you. That we might reach others. That we would be witnesses. We would be witnesses of your truth. Help us to be witnesses, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.